0: Hey, what's going on, you guys? I'm Jay, and i uh, here, as always, with my good friend Isaac. What's up, man? Not much. Good uh,
1: episode today.
0: Yes, we are another episode of the Regeneration Podcast. Um, there's a really important conversation that has been happening and is continuing to happen right now in culture at large, and in particular for Christians, and in particular for young Christians, around the topic of human sexuality. And how we might think about and approach uh, human sexuality, and in particular, you know, how do we think about and approach and theologically engage the question around um, LGBTQ uh, conversations? And so, um, I don't know how, how you've seen this play out, sort of in your ministry context, but I'm sure it's a it's a thing. Yeah, it's 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 nonstop, and
1: especially being kind of in California, the Bay Area, it gets even conversations are even more you know there's just more friction involved but at the end of the day what what we're most concerned about is the individuals who are having to wrestle through these these issues so today we got david bennett coming on who is uh an incredible incredible man he is um the, the subtitle of his book is the book is called a war of loves the unexpected story of a gay activist discovering jesus which is the best subtitle it is the best time. subtitle who's <laughs> beaten that that's insane that's the best that's why i got it and, uh it tells his story of being a gay activist and uh becoming a follower of jesus and then over the next three years wrestling with the bible and coming to the conclusion that he is going to live as a, as a celibate man. And it's his
0: journey that's told in the book, we we'll get into that and so much more, so yeah. much more. On the yeah, David, um, you know, it's incredible. His story is really amazing and incredibly hopeful for all of us. Uh, but David's also, he's not messing around, dude. He's like a heavy hitter. When you, when you hear this conversation, you guys, he's so warm and so likable and so approachable and so kind and generous, you might just think, like, hey, he's just a nice guy that is trying to figure this out. Um, David also has his graduate degree from Oxford University. Mm-hmm. He's a fellow at the Oxford Center for Christian Apologetics, and he's actually candidating to get his Ph.D. Mm-hmm. at Oxford. So um, he's just this incredible sort of intersection of amazing human being, really warm and kind and generous, but yeah, brilliant. Brilliant Theological Mind. So um, this is is such an important conversation. Uh, Isaac and I have both been praying and and, um, just really looking forward to this conversation. We think that, one, you're going to enjoy it, but two, we hope and pray that it instills you with confidence in the Jesus we follow and hope wherever you are, whatever you're going through, and really um, a beautiful picture of where God is taking the human story. So here is our conversation with David Bennett. Hey, David, thanks so much for uh, chatting with us today.
2: Thank you so much for having me on your podcast. Very, yeah. very much been looking forward to chatting to you both. Yeah.
0: Yeah. So I want to ask you, let's just jump right into it, because um, your book, which is uh, uh, A War of Loves, the subtitle is like all sorts of provocative, <laughs> right? The Unexpected Story of a Gay Activist Discovering Jesus. Um how, tell tell us about that. Just give us the story. Like, how did you go? How did you grow up, and where did that lead you? And how did you go from a uh, gay activist to where you are now? Well,
2: it's a long and very uh, profound story. In the sense that, you know, what I've written in the book only scratches the surface of what I've really gone through, but it captures the salient. Points of that journey for people to be able to reflect. And, you know, I, as someone who wasn't a Christian, who came in as gay when I was 14, I never encountered people who now have the kind of position that I do. And so part of the impetus of writing the book was to bring that out in a popular level book that people could access um, and that was, you know, palatable. For, for both Christians and non-Christians to, to begin a conversation. Um, so yeah, the title is the hook really of what sums up the, the, the actual the subtitle sums up the a War of loves, so that there is this kind of identity war going on in our culture. and so I wanted to highlight that journey of how I went from atheist, agnostic, spiritualist, young 14-year-old to the gay activist who hated Christianity, who was, like, decidedly atheist to then who I am now as a Christian and to walk people through that journey. And so it started for me uh, when really about the age of seven or eight, I had this hilarious obsession with Aladdin, <laughs> and I was just dressing up as Aladdin. And my mother was like, "This is unusual," <laughs> you know. And um, she started asking my grandfather, who's a psychiatrist, you think David might be gay?" You know. And there was just this sense that I was a bit different. Um, but that was all cast aside until the age of about fourteen. But I started to imbibe very much as I heard kind of people making homophobic comments and, you know, I knew that that was me. I knew that that was like, I was attracted to the same sex, but I spent most of my teenage years repressing, suppressing. And uh, there's this Henry Nowen quote that actually stands out to me that I think really reflects what I was going through at that age. And he says, over the years I have come to realize that the greatest trap in our life is not success, popularity, or power, but self-rejection. And he says self-rejection is the greatest enemy of the spiritual life because it contradicts the sacred voice that calls us the beloved, the voice of Jesus being the beloved constitutes the core truth of our existence. And so I think what happened for me is that I was driven by this kind of logic of self-rejection that actually was within myself. And so at the age of 14, I came out to my parents and I realized that I had to reject self-rejection to be free.
0: Hmm.
2: But what I didn't realize is that actually I opted for a kind of false solution, which was like radical self-disclosure. It's like, hi, my name's David, I'm gay, and if you have a problem with that, I have a problem with you. Hmm. And there's this kind of bitterness that grew in me from that age. Um, towards people who might have had a different perspective or different worldview, especially Christians. Mm. And so I was actually still controlled by self-rejection the whole time. Mm. And I think that's a fascinating aspect of, I think, what a lot of LGBTQI or gay people experience, or same-sex attracted people experience in today's society, where there is a Christian presence or a theistic presence, and there is, you know, the the other option that seems like the solution, but actually, I found throughout my teenage years that wasn't the solution. This radical self-disclosure—this, I'm gay and that's everything—and if you don't agree with me, then I think one of my friends, liberal friends of mine, said to me, "You know, we need to uh, exclude certain people so that we can include hmm. everyone." It was that kind of like. Yeah in order to get inclusion, I need to exclude everyone. So that was the deep kind of logic that I was psychologically running through my mind. And so I searched in like French existential philosophy. And I ended up at a park when I was 14 years of age with a traditional Christian boyfriend from a kind of ethnic background. And he handed me a cross, an amber cross and put it in my hand, and you know, gave this, And I was like, why would you give me a symbol of our oppression as a present? Like, I don't want this, you know? And he's like, I just want you to have this token of faith. And I'm like, I'm really fine. Like, mm. you know, I start going on this rant about Paul, <laughs> you know, he just kisses me in the middle of that. And then a man pulls up on a motorbike and proceeds to throw a large stone against my back as he's seeing us kissing. And I just remember vowing to myself, like, I will destroy that hatred and Christianity, this cross, is to blame, and at mm. the front of my book is that cross dangling down from my hand. Mm. It wasn't until later I went experienced the grace of God that I was able to know the great gospel of grace and understand a much deeper theology. But back then, it was just God rejects me, Christians reject me, I'm going to be an atheist, mm. and so that's what that was my story up into that point, up until the point of about 18, where I'm at uni, I'm in political activism. I've joined all these like queer collective. I'm the secretary of the queer collective. I'm part of the Labour Party student union. Like, you know, I am yeah. quintessentially queer, quintessentially gay, and I'm very happy about it. Um, I remember like tearing down these posters at university for Christian Union and slapping gay marriage march posters over the top and feeling this sense of like justice. Mm. And I feel like that is an encapsulation of a lot of our secularist culture is driven by that same thing. And so at the same time as I was experiencing that kind of activistic mentality, I also had this gnawing constant spiritual awareness that there was something more and it would kind of like come up at certain moments and I couldn't shake it. Mm. And so then I ended up at Christmas lunch table, 2008, with my uncle, who was a fundamentalist, anti-gay, anti-feminist, Pentecostal Christian. Uh, <laughs> and in his, in my mind, he was my cultural enemy. So I was just waiting for him to bring God up, and I was waiting to intellectually destroy him. So he brings up God, and sure enough, I machine gun him down with every objection in the book from objection of suffering other religions like and women gay people etc mm-hmm. trans people and i say this one thing to him which is there is no absolute truth you can't communicate truth with language i've studied postmodern philosophy i can tell you no like talking to me about god is just ridiculous and he turns around to me he says well david that's an absolute truth and you just communicated that with language, so you just doubly contradicted yourself. And he says to me, truth is a person that I know, not a concept in my head, and I'm not claiming to know everything about truth perfectly, but I know the person that is truth. And that spoke to me on a very deep level in terms of intellectually, and I wasn't expecting an answer as such sophistication from an idiot Christian. Mm-hmm. Uh, <laughs> and so i kind of am intellectually defeated at that point i don't have anything left in my barrel and so i <laughs> storm out of the room angry and like well i'm gay and that's just enough to object to anything you could ever say so i end up in this pub and i meet this girl who's like the hipster indie like social justice filmmaker from heaven in my kind of gay ut- utopia you know <laughs> This this woman is fabulous and I'm like vibing off her and it's just great. And so I'm like, how did you make this film that got into the largest shopping competition in the world? This is amazing. And she's like, oh well, it was God. I'm like, oh. Yeah. (laughs) Fantastic. Um surrounded by these Christians. Um, and she eventually like I'm like, I'm gay. I don't think your God's interested in me, like I'm a spiritual person, but no, da, da, da. And she said, well, have you experienced the love of God? And this question, I feel like, is, like, right at the heart of my book, right at the heart of my story, is I think that I was crying out for someone to ask me that question, but I didn't know it. Mm. And I was searching in romantic love and in gay culture to find the answer to that, to find this kind of mutual comprehension. And it it wasn't until she asked me that question... And, So I said, yeah, you can pray for me. Like, I haven't. I don't think you can. I don't think God exists, but good luck. And so she prays for me, and she launches into, like, Pentecostal prayer. As she's praying for me, I start feeling this tingling sensation on the top of my head. I'm like, what is that? (laughs) And then it's, like, this, like, oil being poured out over my head. And it was, like, so beautiful. It went all the way, and then, like, power through my legs. And I was like, (gasps) you know god's real god's real you know this changes everything i'm a gay activist how can i be thinking that god's real like no (laughs) and i was just so freaked out by this presence like it was so real and i didn't know what to do because it was like in that moment i knew god was real i knew like something so deep within me
1: but you hear of these like supernatural encounters especially it's like the further someone is away like the cultural distance from Christianity. So there's the radical Muslim in this country and there's like no way he's going to become a Christian and the missionary talk to him every day, nothing's working and then he goes, "Yeah, I had a a, a dream." And I, I saw a man and yeah. the man said, "I am Jesus," you know. And it's like sometimes it happens in a prayer, sometimes it happens in a sermon or a worship song and then sometimes it's just like there's nothing you can do about it. Like God's presence just shows up and does something. And it's just, you don't, you can't even ex- articulate. It's like, I don't know, kind of felt like oil on my body. My heart was opening up. Mm-hmm. I felt born again. And it's like this beautiful kind of in- encounter that happened. there was
2: heat and I was sweating. I was just crazy. And then I say, yes. And then like the presence is like 12 times stronger and I'm like weeping, but it's not like, you know, emotionalistic. It's like healing deep yeah. within me. Um, and I had a lot of pneumatic encounters with God, like Holy Spirit encounters. Like I'm start quoting scripture at people at uni. I've never read like Ephesians, and I'm start like basically quoting Ephesians. Mm-hmm. You know, just amazing supernatural things were happening. And like I go and buy my regular hand sushi roll, like good Korean food, you know, and uh, and like go and. Hand it to homeless people. Like I would never have done that before. Like I was way too selfish and hipstery and first, second year of university to ever, like I'd all about social justice, but I never do anything, you know. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, (laughs) But I actually did something. I actually wasn't a hypocrite. And this is like Holy Spirit movement in my heart towards like caring for the poor. It was so amazing. So that's the story of how I at least was, you know, converted to Christ and how. From a kind of atheistic gay hardened activist to accepting jesus as my lord and savior
0: um thank you for sharing that it's a profound story and i would encourage everybody to pick up the book and, and read it in in more detail um and for those who haven't heard your story before and haven't read the book uh you hear a story like that first of all it has these incredible parallels to the story of paul I mean, that's what I was thinking just listening to you going yeah. from, you know, this really zealous activist, totally, again, specifically Christians, and then to sort of encounter, to have your, you know, moment, your Damascus Road moment, and to encounter the risen Christ in such a profound, uh, some would categorize a charismatic way, uh, really incredible life change. But what I think is so fascinating about your story is if all people heard was that story, they might chalk it up to, oh, David is just... Uh, charismatic, touchy-feely, he's in his emotions, and he had an emotional moment, and he's attributing it to Jesus. But um, we talked about it in your introduction, that's not—you're an incredibly thoughtful, bright, scholarly uh, guy, and um, at Oxford, you you this journey didn't end for you just with the profound transformative experience that led you directly back to the Scriptures, and you've done some hard work. So I want to ask you to sort of set up the rest of our conversation. First of all, give us a primer of how you've now sort of reconciled um, all of these things, right, your sexuality with what the Scriptures say and what you believe Jesus is sort of leading you into and how he's wired you and all those things. Tell us what you discovered in the Bible through your research and your study and your engagement, both heart and mind, uh, with the scriptures. Um, Give us maybe a primer for your theological position on sexuality, on human sexuality, and what you discovered in the Bible that sort of led you to that place.
2: There are so many elements, but I think the first thing I'd say is, for me, having had such a powerful encounter, and people say, well, what if I haven't had that experience? and like, why haven't an I? And there's a whole like theodicy question that comes in here like, well, I've suffered and I haven't had that. And I, you know, these are mysteries. What I do know is when you get to the end of yourself and when you're really in your heart of hearts, you have the whole kind of Solomonic Ecclesiastes moment and you're like, hmm. this is not working. That's the point at which God chooses to enter because he knows that we'll, we'll accept this free gift of grace and we won't put up some barrier because the thing is God is not going to force you into his kingdom. Like he really will not. And that's what I've loved about getting to know God through this journey is that he's never forced me into celibacy. Like I now I'm celibate. He's never like demanded these things. It's almost like he's waiting for me to get what he's already put in me. It was
1: a three, from the book, a three-year journey, right? From when you became a Christian, it was, I can't remember the timeline, but three years of wrestling with how do I now li- live? And it wasn't like, oh, I'm a Christian now, it, all the theology's figured out, I got to do X, Y, Z. It was three years of, of working through this.
2: It, exactly. It was a long journey. And for me, it was about God breaking through barriers in me epistemologically, when you're gay, if you come from any other worldview that isn't Christian and you come into faith, there are going to be steps you need to take in that faith journey where for all intents and purposes, you're not going to understand everything. Otherwise it wouldn't be faith, but there's enough evidence to trust. It's never just yeah. blind, fideistic faith. Mm-hmm. And so I think when people try to say, oh, David's just this non-thinking, experiential guy who's just all about affections and nothing about reason, I think that's a cop-out because rationality itself is effective, and rationality is also mentative. So it's both and. And for me, like there was actually a time in my walk where apologetics became really important, and I needed to ask those questions, and I wasn't willing to just accept my faith purely on effective I've had this big encounter Mm -hmm. um and and so you know Thomas Cramner here the archbishop that was burnt at the stake for um you know his reformation views in England he talks about how there's this kind of level level of rationality of the heart as Pascal says the heart has reasons of which reason knows nothing and so it's almost like if those reasons, those those heart reasons aren't dealt with, then your ration, then your kind of mentative level is never going to accept the truth of God. It's never going to say yes because your heart is kind of controlling that. You know, and that was the whole inquiry of ancient Greek philosophy of wanting to kind of escape the physical Mm -hmm. active in order to get to the spiritual mentative and find the truth. And these bodies were kind of ways of but the Christian truth is very different. It's by being embodied and by being affected mm-hmm. uh, um, that we are actually liberated with the mind and with reason. It all comes together. And so he says, "What the heart desires, the mind justifies." Mm-hmm. So I, I went on a journey, and this is where like Sarah Coakley's work and a lot of like behind my book is this kind of some theological scholarship that's happening a lot at the moment uh, about desire and about how that affects the way we know. And I think until I desired God more than my other desires, until I got to this kind of threshold point in Strasbourg, France, at the age of uh, 23, it it wasn't until that point where I really desired God more than romantic love or other things in life that I was then able to kind of aesthetically give mm-hmm. my sexuality over my money, my body, like my self lordship. Mm-hmm. And actually Jesus became my Lord. And there's a very strong message of discipleship in the book because I think that our culture doesn't understand that if we don't desire God most fundamentally, like why would you give up your sexuality if you haven't discovered a transcendence that's greater than it, mm-hmm. you know, and, so I think that's kind of the other message is you need to actually know God. <laughs> that's why I think I don't compromise on the charismatic edge because the, I think the best of the charismatic movement is saying you have to actually know God, really.
1: Yeah, that's what I got in, in, in reading it was that you're getting a little bit of truth just enough that where you're at you could take the next step in in faith. And what was probably the best thing I could say about about the book um, is I never, it didn't feel as if you're reading a book of, okay, this is why um, I should not act upon my same-sex attraction. It was a journey of someone who is discovering the love of God more and more, and at each step, the person desires that love and realizes that that is the thing that is worth pursuing at all cost, and in doing so, the other things lose their grip. So it wasn't like, this is why this is wrong and this is right. It's a book on why Jesus is most desirable. And when that occurs, so many of these other things begin to f- fall into place.
2: Yeah. And it's it's like your other identities are demoted. They're not erased. They're still important. They're part of your history, your your personhood. And that's another crisis we're facing kind of in evangelical culture is people want to delete gay. They want to delete this history, and just say, don't ever identify in any sense as, as that, and or same-sex attractive or whatever word, I don't really care, but that you actually I represent it in language and that it's told, but it's demoted under the lordship of Christ. It becomes part of the obedience that's wrought by grace in the disciple. And I think that's what I'm crying out for in the book, is we've got to stop having this culture war war and say, I'm going to follow Jesus (laughs) and Mm -hmm. that's going to break open the culture war and that's going to destroy the idols that empower it. Um, And, you know, for me, I think the culture war liberal and conservative has been the most damaging thing for me as a gay person. And it's, it's meant I don't have the freedom to choose where I'm going to (laughs) go. You know? Um, Mm -hmm. And then I had to, I had to realize that true freedom was a negative kind of freedom, Mm -hmm. which was, you know, I'm actually in some sense called to a narrow path that then is opens up to an ocean of grace. So it's, it's this kind of paradox constantly that I was encountering. The other thing I'd say is that when I had that reshifting, that reorientation of desires at my heart it level with the Holy Spirit and then intellectually as well, I started to be able to read scripture more lucidly I wouldn't hold the text and be so frightened of it that it might say something that I don't want it to say mm-hmm. suddenly. And it's this kind of Kierkegaard moment where Kierkegaard says, you know, Christians have invented biblical scholarship to avoid actually obeying Jesus. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. And it's like I could, because my heart affections had been changed. I could be open to the text and let it be what it is instead of trying to hermeneutically twist it into whatever conservative or liberal ethic. And suddenly that all just melted away and it was what it was. <laughs> You know, mm-hmm. And there wasn't this kind of constant, well, some people have their view here and some people interpret it this way, but the Word of God actually had its claim on my life, mm-hmm. um, and it was primary, not what I thought about it. And I lived under it, um, not as a law, but as a grace-life-giving word. And mm-hmm. so there's some deep theology here <laughs> in, in how I think – not just with gay identity or gay desires or same-sex attraction, but with everything in our lives that we need to learn. And that's why I think the blessing of being same-sex attracted or gay is that you are not forced, but there's a stronger, heavier weight that pushes you into a deeper kind of discipleship with Jesus. And you see this in the Gospels. It's always the broken, outcast kind of people everyone thinks like is a bit of strange or on the fringe that actually becomes the like exemplary disciple, you know, that's the Mary Magdalene, it's deep and existential and understands Mm -hmm. faith, understands God who gets the resurrection, even though the 12 don't, you know, it's always this logic in God's kingdom that I just absolutely love that has really made me trust that the new Testament, old Testament, the whole thing is really inspired and from a real living God.
0: Yeah. That's a really beautiful and powerful perspective. I think that, like you said, does expand beyond just um, the sexuality conversation, the whole uh, how can some of the ways in which we're wired and and, uh, the unique ways in which many of us are wired, how can they point us to um, a stronger sense of lordship of Jesus in our lives? it's a reversal of seeing those things as uh, oppressive and seeing them actually as freeing in terms of moving us more into what it means to be truly the humans that God's made us to be. Uh, uh, David, I want to ask you a very specific question about that getting back to, and you've you've sort of mentioned this uh, as almost sidebar, but I want to ask you very specifically, you identify uh, and this is you know the language um, as a celibate gay christian and mm-hmm. that actually gets you attacked from both sides of the conversation there are many sides of the conversation but it gets you attacked from both sides on one side uh, traditionally maybe what will be considered more the c- conservative or fundamentalist side they they attack you because you still say you're gay and they they might say something like well You know if you're really in christ then those identity identity markers that that should be gone and that's you know whatever it's sinful and all those things and then you get attacked on the other side the more classically it would be labeled the the maybe more progressive liberal side with the celibacy issue. They would say, well, wh- what do you mean? Why are you still bound by that? I wanna ask you, cause you've put yourself in a precarious situation and it's actually really courageous. Um, I wanna ask you, what have you learned? Are you learning uh, as you sort of now are more public, you know, with a book and in speaking um, on, on this topic, what are you learning a- as you sort of see both sides and navigate the, the center? And, uh, and what is maybe in some ways your response, you know, to both of those sides as they sort of hurl these accusations toward you?
2: Well, look, I think anything that's motivated by fear will never produce the results that God desires. Scripture is clear that faith alone pleases God, and we can't please God without faith. And for me, it's actually been a journey of understanding what faith means. And faith is not, not about self erasure. Faith is not about denying embodied realities that are still present. So I'll often hear Christians say, you know, on the more fundamentalist end, Hey, David, I've been cured. I've been healed. Like I'm married to a heterosexual, you know, a heterosexual marriage now, and um, it's all good. You know, you really should try this out. Like, (laughs) you know, maybe a bit of conversion therapy, you know, and, (laughs) and then I'll ask them, so have you, do you ever experience same sex attraction? Like ever? And they'll all say to me, yeah, of course I do. And so what I say to them is, so you've been given the gift of marriage by God through grace. So he, God has in God's mind, you cannot dissect redeemer from creator. What the liberal discourse is trying to do is to say that creator is different to redeemer. That is schizophrenic and crazy. Mm -hmm. Like, what the God who created in the beginning, male and female, is not going to contradict himself in the eschaton. Mm -hmm. He's going to honor, vindicate, and elevate what he's already created. He's not going to delete it. He's not going to erase it. And he's also going to bring his glory through the weakness. Just because he wants to prove that, like, he's that glorious that he can create out of death. He can take what would otherwise produce sin, and actually bring the most glory out of it. And that's the paradox that I want to highlight with being same-sex attracted or gay, is that the trophy of grace, the glory that will be expressed in worship and praise of God in the final, you know, day for the same-sex attracted or gay Christian that's trusted God with those desires, is going to be enormous. Mm. Just like the rich man who sells everything and gives it to the poor, just like whatever heavy thing we're given becomes a light burden, becomes the source of, like, it's it's these deep paradoxes of Jesus that I'm interested in. I'm not interested in trying to live an idolatrous life. You know, I'm following Jesus here. <laughs> mm. And so to, to be told that I'm not doing that because I want to represent an aspect of my embodied reality that has not changed and doesn't need to change. I mean, I remember my friend, he said to me, like, you know, I'm really open to my same sex attractions changing, but you know, the problem is it could become heterosexual and then I'll just lust after women. So like, Mm. it doesn't change the fundamental problem. Mm. (laughs) So if you can have this gift of what I call a mixed orientation marriage, and there are a lot of people who I believe are authentic and real and not weird and not living under some pressure that are in mixed orientation marriages, which just to clarify is someone who is, your same sex is in a partnership with someone opposite sex. And that these are real and God does extend that grace to a certain group of same-sex attracted or gay people because God wants to help us in grace, honor his created order that he established in the beginning. Um, And then there are people who are called to celibacy as a witness to the future where there will be no marriage and that will be fulfilled um, and a greater reality of intimacy between all of us will be experienced. But I don't think that that reality is going to erase maleness and femaleness. Rather, it's going to transform it into something greater. This is in Gregory of Nyssa and Augustine. Some church fathers have like thought about this. So I think we just need to realize we need to go deeper than we are. And we're stuck in superficialities that aren't helping us. One thing I'll also say is I actually believe That the kind of conversation I'm calling for through a war of loves is actually one of the antidotes to young LGBTQI suicidality in the church. Mm. Because in my experience, what led me to suicidality was the war, the tearing, Mm. the constant never knowing, the constant lack of depth that would allow me to actually resolve this in my life. And it wasn't until I read people like Wesley Hill, who's a deep theologian, who's a fantastic scholar, that I was able to actually get to the depth of the gospel that helped me do this. And so my passion is kind of actually to reignite the church theologically so that it can deal with the deeper, harder realities that it faces um, and the commodification of desire we're seeing in our culture. You know,
1: it's funny, we we just recorded a different podcast and I I brought this text up and relating it in a weird way to food, but um, it's probably more um, important for for this one. The Ephesians 5 um, picture that Paul paints is he talks about earthly marriage um, being a mystery, but ultimately it is an institution that God puts into his created order that exists to point to the greater heavenly marriage. And so mm-hmm. what you get in, at, towards the end of the book, when you get into some of the like practical um, kind of words for the church, this, this comes together where, where we're talking about, if if we can understand that even earthly marriage is not the end goal, the end goal is what earthly marriage is pointing to. And they, they run parallel with each other. So as you're saying, it's not like God's going to absolve male, female, there's going to be a, a, a transformation and a, and, a, and, a, and a glory that happens, but in the church world, often we treat earthly marriage as the end goal. Mm-hmm. Like then, oh, then, yeah. you, then you have arrived spiritually, and what you're doing for some of my friends in, in a similar uh, position as you, it's like you say, "No, I'm just bypassing the earthly symbol and going straight to the heavenly reality, in <laughs> which which you are, you know, literally." You're living (laughs) as a celibate Christian man who's saying, my marriage in the future is ultimately with Christ, but that future reality is something that I'm getting to taste and participate in in the presence. Very eschatological in in that Mm -hmm. sense. Um, And so, yeah, maybe a few uh, encouraging words to the the church or maybe some convicting words to the church. Um, There was one line... I, I, I don't I have so many things underlined, but you, you talked about um, where it's like sometimes wedding announcements are celebrated by Christians more than new conversion mm-hmm. announcements. And yeah. so, that, so that, that gets to the point of no, no, we're, we're treating the earthly marriage mm-hmm. as the greatest end goal rather than the new convert is now married to Christ. And that calls for a bigger celebration. Mm-hmm. Wow.
2: The church is a greater idolater in a sense because it has the knowledge of Jesus. It knows about the gospel and yet it's worshiping romantic love. Like you can point or you like to secular culture and say, Oh, look how bad it is. But at least it's honest. Mm-hmm. You're hiding your idolatry. You're spraying perfume on it and you're d- dancing up and down. And then you're expecting God to come in revival. Like good luck. Mm-hmm. Like, <laughs> God is not going to come until we repent of our idols, you know, and until we, you know, listen to the prophets and we live in the fullness of the light of Christ in our desire life. And I think a lot of church is about kind of concealing idolatry for heterosexual people. But the great thing about same sex attraction and this whole debate is it's digging it up and excavating it and it won't let the church get away with its idolatry. And I think that threatens the power hold certain leaders feel they have in these moral conversations you know and so i think that that is a really negative reality that i really want to counteract and i think we need all of us together to be one body and hear each other and that there's an answer in each other to this question i can't do this celibate life i need my heterosexual brothers and sisters like and they need me, and God has put something in each other. And, you know, it was so interesting because one of the things that unlocked my capacity to truly give myself to Jesus was when I saw a healthy Christian marriage that wasn't idolatrous like that. And then I saw the icon, the image of Christ in the church and this deep mystery. That's it, yeah, exactly right. I fell in love with the image that he created in the beginning and i was willing to give up gay marriage for that true christian marriage that i saw in that couple but when i saw the idolatrous version that was all political and i'm trying to get into ministry and climb up the ladder at church and appear pure pure and this whole american purity or just not just american purity culture but you know i'm all for purity i love purity it's amazing but not like a semi-Pelagian striving to be holy without action of God in our hearts to deliver us from our idols. And we're all going to fall, we're all going to keep falling, but it's the direction of travel that we're going in um, that matters.
1: Yeah, you hit it when you talked about the, um, the godly uh, marriage that you observe. That's exactly the Ephesians 5 languages. You are now seen in a healthy Christian marriage— a living, walking, breathing example of the gospel. You go, oh, that's what the love of Christ, that's what it looks like. And it's embodied again in a relationship. And the way God communicates that in marriage, in the earthly reality is, is a, a man and a woman loving each other. And you're just seeing that take place. You're going, that's that's Jesus. That's That's the gospel example. And again, I just, again, like the, you know, well, then you realize, oh, I don't want that. I want I want what it's pointing to. Yeah. I want to bypass the earthly institution. And it's not to knock the <laughs> earthly institution because I'm I'm married. It's I, I, yeah, I it's but yeah. it's it has to be it has to be under in like a hierarchy almost of the ultimate marriage, Uh the marriage of marriages, if you will. When you
0: when you uh, read on. Ephesians 5, it's even funny when Paul's writing, he has this hiccup moment at the end yeah, of yeah. that section, and he's like doing the whole marriage and women and men and husbands, wives, whatever. And he goes, oh, also, like I'm... You know, I'm talking about Jesus and the church. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> the it's language. like this really funny, like, whoa. Uh, yeah, the whole point is...
1: It's super practical. Husbands do this, wives do this. Oh, but yeah, there's this great mystery, and it's incredibly profound, and it's kind of hard to understand. But when two become one flesh, it's pointing to Christ. It's, it's Jesus. It's, it's Jesus. Yeah, and his now, people. Yeah. for the... Because for the, a lot of our audience is... They're single, and... Christians who love Jesus, who are serving Jesus, and they're not married, and a, probably a big portion of our audience is in, is in that in that boat. And there's kind of in church culture, it's seen as something. There's something wrong with you. Some, something's not right. So maybe uh, some encouraging, almost pastoral words to to mm-hmm. those because there's a, a big part of our audience is right there.
2: Look, I think one of my favorite verses about this. Well, one of them is in the Old Testament, in Isaiah 56, where God promises to singles or eunuchs or people who, you know, aren't married, um, you know, a name better than having sons and daughters, an eternal name that shall not be cut off. Um, And then you see the eunuch in Acts 8 getting baptized really in such a great, like, radical way going off with the Isaiah scroll to Africa to become the father of a nation. How ironic that a man who can't have children, uh, and is single, it becomes the spiritual father of the whole of Africa. Wow. Um, and then, (laughs) and then you have like, you have revelation, I think it is seven where it talks about, um, those who have not defiled themselves like in sex who haven't had sex. Um, that they sing a song that no one can sing, that they have a name that no one else has, and that they um, are the first fruits of the Lamb's ministry and that they can follow the Lamb wherever he goes. And so I think for whatever period of time you are called to singleness, I would see it as almost like spiritual warfare, because in the Old Testament, Israelite warriors would abstain from sex during warfare because it was unlawful to, like, have any sexual intercourse with anyone you're engaging in warfare with. Praise God. And uh, <laughs> radically different to the other nations that were surrounding Israel, let me tell you. And uh, and, uh, and so this is, like, brought forward into the New Testament through all this kind of unique language and Jesus's ministry and Paul being celibate and this, you know, john the apostle probably being celibate as well and you know this whole reality then is seen as almost like spiritual warfare it's almost like a spiritual warfare image first fruits of the lamb like Mm. the first people going into battle um in the kingdom you know and that's not to say people that are married aren't doing that in a different way but there is this kind of special intimacy this special calling um for whatever time you are single um To be that person, and your lack being filled with a greater fullness, um your lack is because we do sense a lack, I think when we're single there's not as much permanence in our life. things are more transient, um, but then that casts us back to be more dependent on the permanence of Jesus and yeah. his lordship and so and and friendship and investing in kind of deeper networks of intimacy across the church that maybe when you're married it's harder to do you just don't have as much time so these two callings are meant to work together and uh, I'm just going to read a quote out from who is readily becoming one of my favorite kind of theological voices and he says His name's Oliver O'Donovan. He's a Regis Professor of Pastoral and Moral Theology, and he says, The New Testament church bore witness by fostering the social conditions which could support the vocation to the single life. It conceived of marriage and singleness as vocations, each a worthy form of life, the two together compromising the whole Christian witness to the nature of affectionate community. The one declared that God had vindicated the order of creation, that being marriage. The other pointed beyond it to its eschatological transformation. We're talking about this heavenly reality. But the coexistence of the two within the Christian church did not mean a loss of integrity to either. Each had to function as what it was according to its own proper structure. The married must live in the ways of marriage, the single in the ways of singleness. Neither would accommodate in itself or evoke in the other an evolutionary mutation. Marriage that was not marriage could not witness to the goodness of the created order. That's why sexual immorality is wrong. That's why these other options won't work. Singleness that was not singleness could tell us nothing of the fulfillment for which that order was destined. Mm -hmm. And I just love that. I mean, it's very. um, It's in his book, Resurrection and Moral Order. But I think it really sums up what I want to say to singles, is that what you're living right now, is super valuable and it points to the fulfillment for which the created order that marriage embodies physically in sex and, and becoming one flesh, you know, is actually pointing to in the greater fulfillment. So you should get excited because you're doing the thing you're pointing to the thing that's even greater to Mm. than that reality, you know? And Mm. so um, we, there should be no, like, I'm missing out feeling. And if there is, I think that that's a sign of an idolatry of romantic love, that you need to break at Jesus' feet and say to Jesus, like, you're enough for me. <laughs> like, if I was yeah. never married, you can have it. And this idea that I have a right to sex mm. and that I need it to be whole is a lie. Our culture says that sex is intimacy. Mm. And that's just wrong. You can have a lot of sex and no intimacy. Yeah. And I think actually true intimacy sexually is experienced in marriage, like the highest form of it, because there's this absolute self giving, this total ecstasis with the right boundaries in place. So ecstasy and hypostatic, like I am myself, Mm -hmm. like the full commitment and the full individuality being honored in a covenant um, between male and female. So yeah. I just want to encourage singles to say like, just run at it. Just go for it. Just throw your, your life into serving Jesus. We've got what, like 70 years on this earth. Let's do it. Like, let's <laughs> bring that glory, you know? like.
1: <laughs> yeah. No, Jesus
0: <laughs> is enough. Time. That's, that's the beautiful we line. We don't have
2: time for this, you know, <laughs> self in, you know, being, staring at one's navel, like, let's. <laughs>
0: Um, David, thank you so much. Where, where can people connect with you? I know this is going to spark all sorts of conversation for people and questions and eagerness to find more of your work. Obviously they can go and order a war of loves, which we would highly recommend. But um, is there, are there ways people can connect with you online, follow along on your journey?
2: Yeah. So there's, uh, a war which has all the details about the book and will eventually, I think be transformed into a better website than it currently is. <laughs> <laughs> um, it's kind of like the launch website for the book, but eventually I'm going to hopefully be writing up there regularly and having, you know, different articles on things that come up in popular culture, etc. cetera. And then there's my Facebook page, my Twitter, you can kind of jump on there and say hello. Um, and then yeah, David AC Bennett on Twitter. Um, and just David Bennett on Facebook. Um, yeah, so look, there will be more coming. Yeah. Um, uh, and I'm hoping to kind of get a YouTube channel eventually and just, yeah. But at the moment, I've got to focus on this. Yeah, yeah, Totally.
0: (laughs) Well, that's awesome. We'll be on the lookout for all of that and following you along on your journey. Your voice, again, is so important and needed, uh, especially now um, in in the day and age in which we find ourselves. So David, thank you, not just for your time today in this conversation, but for all of your work.
2: Thank you so much, both of you. It's been a real pleasure. And I hope we can have many more conversations.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Thanks, David.
2: Thank you so much. Bye.